you're joining us for the first time, we are in the midst of a series called The Cloud of Witnesses. Uh, we are in the fifth week of that. And it's a series in which we're looking at faith. What is it? Why is it important? Why does it matter? And we're using chapter 11 of the book of Hebrews, uh, which is known as the Hall of Faith or the Cloud of Witnesses. And it features all these people in the Old Testament who had standout faith. So each week we're looking at a different person featured in that cloud. And we're, and we're looking to what made their faith particularly special. But not only that, we're looking to how Christ is the author and perfecter of their faith, as we read at the very end of chapter, or beginning of chapter 12. And the working definition that we're using of faith in this series so far is the total alignment of ourselves, our souls, our minds, our emotions, our wills, our bodies, with the person and promises of Jesus. So that's the working definition we're using of faith. Um, did you ever have, do leaf rubbings in elementary school? Did you ever do those? Yeah, they're kind of fun. It's that time of year to be doing some leaf rubbings. I'm sure you're gonna go home after this and do that. Um, but you take, a, you take a leaf, you put it under a piece of paper, you take your crayon and you kind of etch back and forth over top of it. And essentially that's what we're doing. I mean, each week as we look at a different person, we're getting a little bit more of that etching about what is faith and why does it matter. Uh, so far we've looked at three different people in this series. Uh, each of them highlights a different aspect of faith. When we looked at Abel in the first time we looked at a person, we saw that faith is the way into a right and a favorable relationship with God. Then when we looked at Enoch two weeks ago, we saw that faith is uh, more than even that. Faith brings us into the pleasure and the delight of God. And then last week we saw with Noah that faith is what brings us through God's judgment because Christ's faithfulness endured for us. This week we are looking at Abraham and Sarah Abraham commands a great deal of attention in the Bible, both Old Testament and New Testament, as the father of faith. So it's no surprise that the section on Abraham and Sarah in Hebrews is the longest on anybody. I'm calling this sermon a faith, an exiled faith, an exiled faith. And I'm going to use this phrase as kind of a guiding something to guide us through this text. I lost the word I'm trying to say. Yeah. Uh, anyway, I think you can take that phrase, an exiled faith, two different ways. You can think of it as both a faith that exiles, a faith that drives into exile, and also a faith in the midst of exile. And I mean it in both ways, and I want to look at it, this sermon, go through both of those things, before finally looking at the way in which this faith carries us through exile to the promises of God. So I'll say that again, I'll sum it up, make it a little more succinct. We're going to look at faith that results in exile, we're going to look at faith in the midst of exile, and we're going to look at faith that carries us through exile to the promises of God. So if you've got a Bible, open it up, Hebrews chapter 11. Uh, this sermon is that relationship between faith and exile. In this first section, I want to look at that driving force towards exile. Faith is something that leads us away from the known, the comfortable, the familiar, and into the unknown, the uncomfortable, the unfamiliar. That's what I mean by exile, those types of things. The writer of Hebrews says right at the beginning of chapter 11 that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And I think when we hear that phrase, it's, it sounds pretty good, but uh, I have a really hard time imagining what does that actually mean, the conviction of things not seen. How can we hold convictions about something we've never seen? It doesn't make a whole lot of sense. So the writer of Hebrews says this, and he kind of sends our imaginations running wild with it. And then as he starts walking through each of these people, he's going to show us what he means by that. And he starts doing that especially with the story of Abraham. 
Let's read from the beginning of our section, verse 8 in chapter 11. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he lived in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. I think the major thing to notice about Abraham's faith is that it expresses itself primarily in obedience. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out. And this highlights, yet again, a key aspect of faith, that faith and belief are not the same thing. We act most of the time as though faith is merely belief, holding as true all the right things about God or Christianity. And right belief is certainly included in any discussion of faith, but belief does not constitute faith in its entirety. Faith means not only believing the right things, but being obedient to the one in whom we believe. It's not so much our actions that God cares about. It's, he cares about us being creatures of a certain kind or quality, as C.S. Lewis says. And I think what he means by that is creatures who know our creator's voice and who do all in our power to obey our creator's voice. But I mean, why? Why would we do that? If somebody tells us to do something, why should we do it? Why does Abraham do it? Why, when God calls him, does he leave everything and go after this? I think it's because of the promises God makes to him. Uh, beginning of, near the beginning of Genesis, chapter 12, God makes all these promises to Abraham when he calls him. And this is going to show up on the screen. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in, all, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord told him and Lot went with him. Abraham goes because God makes big promises to him. He promised that he would give him a land and a people, that he would make his name great, that he would be a blessing to all the families of the earth. Yet for Abraham, these are merely promises. He didn't see any of these things come to pass in his own lifetime. True to the definition at the beginning of the chapter, Abraham demonstrates a faith that is the conviction of things not seen. Abraham acted in obedience with conviction regarding these promises. Promises that he hadn't seen, promises that he would never see fulfilled. His going out in faith was entirely rooted in God and his promise to him. And I mean, all this is well and good, but I don't imagine God has come to you and personally spoken to you that he's going to make your name great and give you a land and a people and that you're going to be a blessing. So I mean, what do we do with this? How, does, how do we bring this forward to our lives? If we're going to talk for this sermon about a faith that leads to exile, we need to first know what the promises are that God has made to us. And here we get into a bit of a paradox. On the one hand, all these promises that God makes to Abraham are indeed promises to us, but they're promises that are ours only in Christ. In Christ, we have a name that's greater than all other names. In Christ, we're part of a nation that spans both time and space. In Christ, the blessings of God are opened to all the families of the earth. But on the other hand, we still don't have a land of promise, really. Things are not yet as they're supposed to be. And with Abraham, 
as it says in Hebrews here, for he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. This is a metaphor for what the Lord is going to give to Abraham and to all people after that great and terrible, terrible day of the Lord. Alistair talked last week about faith as being that which carries us through judgment. But what does it carry us to? What is beyond that? And this week we see with Abraham that that destiny is the city that has foundations, the writer of Hebrews says. See, the story of God began in a garden, and it's going to end in this magnificent city that keeps being talked about. A city with foundations. This is how the Bible speaks of heaven, of the resurrected life. But God makes other promises in the Bible about our ultimate destiny. And I think nobody had a better imagination for this than C.S. Lewis. And this sermon has given me a whole lot of time this week to just sit with Lewis, and it's been amazing. Particularly a sermon he preached in 1941 at St. Mary the Virgin Church in Oxford called The Weight of Glory. And in this sermon, he talks about the promises of God. He talks about heaven, essentially. He says that God promises over and over and again in Scripture that we'll be with Christ and that we'll be like Christ. Christ. This is what God promises to us. But the Bible also talks constantly about us having glory at that last day. Palms and crowns and white robes and thrones and splendor like the sun and the stars. And Lewis says that this had absolutely no appeal to him whatsoever. Because it sounds like fame, really. And fame is just being better known than those people around you. It's competitive, he thought. Fame is always a competitive thing. Why is this what's promised at the end? But as Lewis says, he dug into this more and more. He found many of the fathers of Christian theology talking about glory, quite frankly, in the sense of fame. But there was a key difference. This is not fame with others. This is fame with God. Approval or even appreciation by God. And here I want to read just a very short section from that sermon. And then, when I had thought it over, I saw that this view, this view of, of glory as fame, was scriptural. Nothing can eliminate from the parable the divine accolade, well done, thou good and faithful servant. With that, a good deal of what I had been thinking all my life fell down like a house of cards. I suddenly remembered that no one can enter heaven except as a child, and nothing is so obvious in a child, not in a conceited child, but in a good child, as its great and undisguised pleasure in being praised. Ethan has learned to walk, as maybe you've, you've been seeing. Our son, he's 14 months. And he's no expert yet. I will, not, I will not say that about him. He still falls down a lot. Uh, but he's got it. He's walking. And man, is he proud of himself when he walks. But I really don't think this is proud because of some kind of inherent self-approval in him. The only reason he even knows to be proud is because he sees how delighted we are in him. We'll sit on the couch and we'll walk and watch to walk towards us with this huge smile on his face, reflecting back to us what he sees on our faces. And before Lewis, I could never have thought of that as a picture of how God looks at us. But I can't get this image out of my mind now. God promi God's promise to us is that we will have 
glory, but not in the sense of fame with our peers. We'll have the glory that can only come through seeing the utter delight that God takes in us as his children. That's what God promises us. And I could keep going on talking about that, but this is a sermon about faith. And we cannot forget that faith, our faith, is not what's going to bring us into these promises. Look again at Hebrews chapter 11, verse 11. By faith, Sarah herself received the power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. See, both Abraham and Sarah are held up as shining examples of faith but their faith is only effective because God is first faithful to his promise. And if we believe that he's faithful to his promise, then we have to respond to him. God simply asks Abraham to go, and he goes. But how often do we respond with that same sort of obedience? And I'm not just talking about big things. I'm not talking about leaving family and friends and country and career. I'm also talking about those small moments. Moments in which God calls us to be faithful to him. Those moments that are so insignificant, we think that no one will even notice if we don't do the things God wants us to do. It's those moments when you get the sense that you should really call that person, or the feeling you can't seem to shake that you need to talk to that person in the elevator or on the bus. But how often are we actually obedient in situations like that, when we feel the Spirit's prompting. Years ago, Carrie and I were, were living in Edmonton, and I was working in youth ministry. And I'm sorry, I'm just going to take a drink of water here. I had posted a Palm Pilot. Any of you remember Palm Pilots? Yeah, there it is. Isn't that awesome? I mean, that just looks like a relic. Uh, I would posted this Palm Pilot for sale on Kijiji, which is the, basically the Edmonton equivalent of Craigslist. And I'd been contacted by this man who wanted to purchase this Palm Pilot from me. Uh, he was an elderly gentleman. And when I arrived at Tim Hortons to meet him, he was sitting there already waiting for me, sitting at this table. I sat down. I showed him the Palm Pilot. Uh, he was retired now. He wanted to use it to basically stay organized, that sort of a thing. He tried it out. He liked it. So he paid me. And that was it. And then he asked me, can I buy you a coffee? I'm pretty shy when it comes to situations like that. And I said, uh, no, actually, I can't. I need to go. I've got something I need to do, somewhere I need to be. I didn't. I didn't have anywhere to go. I was just going to go back to my office at the church and sit by myself. <laughs> right? Yeah. Uh, he seemed like a really sweet man. He's probably lonely now that he was retired. And I think he probably just wanted someone to chat with, somebody to talk to. And as I walked to my car and then drove back to my office, I had this horrible feeling. It was that feeling that the Spirit had been speaking to me in that moment, prompting me to say, yeah, sure, I'll stay. Let's, let's chat. So why didn't I listen? I'd say, sure, let's do that. And that's a terrible feeling. I'm sure you felt that feeling too. It's that feeling of having missed out on an opportunity, the feeling of having ignored God, really. My faith in God didn't evidence itself in obedience that day. I didn't stop believing that God exists, certainly. I just didn't act as if he did. And that's the key. What Abraham is showing us about faith is that it's not only recognizing God's voice, it's also being obedient to it. And even though being faithful to God in those moments might seem like it's of no consequence, 
We have to remember that our faith is always a response to what God is already doing. I don't know how God might have been working in that guy's life. I don't know how he might have used me that day. Maybe my staying would have been of no significance whatsoever. But maybe it would have been. I don't know. And I'm not trying to sound overly dramatic, but it's these small acts of obedience. They can have huge consequences, huge significance in the kingdom. And I think that's what the writer of Hebrews is trying to show us in this section. By faith, Abraham obeyed. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even though she was past the age, since she considered him faithful, who had promised. Therefore, we get in that last verse of that section, from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. From these radical yet, in other ways, small acts of obedience comes this revolutionary outcome, writer of Hebrews shows us. So the question is, why are we so quick to avoid this? Why didn't I stay and have a coffee with this guy at Tim Hortons? Why do we run from God at the first hint that he might want to talk to us about how we use our money or how we use our bodies? I think the answer is pretty clear in our text. It's because this kind of faith, faith that's obedient to God's call, is a faith that actually drives towards exile. It takes us from a land that's familiar to us to one that's unfamiliar, where we're seen as strangers and aliens. It takes us to a land where the promises of God seem far off. It's not a comfortable place. It's not home. And I don't like that, really. I want my existence to be comfortable, friendly, familiar. If there's going to be challenges, I want them to be challenges I set for myself. I don't want people to look at me and think that I'm odd or maybe even delusional. I want to fit in. I want to be liked. I want to be appreciated, accepted, maybe even looked up to someday. But what this text shows us is that to be obedient to God, to hear his voice in scripture and the promptings of his spirit and obey, will make it so this, this place, which seems so safe a moment ago, is no longer home to us. True faith is a faith that exiles. Now if that's true, if faith, true faith is a faith that exiles, what does it look like once faith has done its exiling work in our lives? And I think this brings us to our second point. How do we continue to have faith in God in the midst of exile? Let's look at verses 13 to 16. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they're seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. I want to highlight two things out of these verses as we answer the question of how do we continue to have faith in the midst of exile. The first is that we actually have to acknowledge that we're strangers and aliens in this place. And the second is that we have to actually desire a better country. So the first one, acknowledging that we're strangers and aliens. Look at verse 13. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. 
There's no getting around the fact that when you are obedient to God and to God's word, you're going to find yourself feeling like this place no longer quite, quite fits like it did before. But the question is, what do we do with that sort of a feeling? We can, on the one hand, run from this by ignoring God's voice, by ignoring his word, by simply continuing to believe that he exists, but not really paying any mind whatsoever to what he says. Or we can recognize that the world is beginning to feel a little less like home, and we can embrace it. And this has profound implications for the way we live. We live in a place where consumerism is basically all consuming, for lack of a better word. It's one of the defining characteristics of Western society. And I think we usually think of consumerism in terms of goods, but it works itself out in all sorts of other ways, too. We consume and we collect experiences as much as goods. We need to travel to the most countries we can. We have to go on the best trips. We have to have eaten at the best restaurants, read the best books, watched every episode of our favorite TV show, been at the best church with the best music, with the best preaching, seen all the world's best art, been to all the best concerts. See, at its heart, consumerism is the mentality that this life and this world are the only ones I have. So why wouldn't I try to fit in as much as I possibly can? This is home. So I'm going to do everything I can to fit in, to enjoy it, to gather as much stuff and as many experiences as I can. But, but, if I have faith in God, true obedient faith, then this place is not home. The more I press into the promises of God, the more I set my eyes on his promises, the more this place becomes a foreign land to me. The more I press on to the heavenly country, the city that has foundations, the more I realize that this land, which is but a foretaste of the beauty and the splendor that's to come, is little more than a place in which I move my tent from one valley to the next. And these are beautiful tents, often. It's a beautiful land. But it's not home, Hebrews tells us. And as our eyes are open to this, we see that our consumption has been nothing less than a move to make this place ultimate. To make our stuff and our experiences meet those deep longings of our souls. Longings for permanence. Longings for a home. But to acknowledge that this isn't home, that we're strangers and exiles in this place, is to make it clear that we know we belong someplace else, that home is someplace else. Look what the writer of Hebrews says in verses 14 to 16. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. An obedient faith leads us not only to acknowledge that this place isn't home, but that we're seeking something greater. We're seeking a better country, a heavenly one. This week I was on Facebook at some point and I stumbled across this article. This was the title of it. Vancouver ranked the most city in the world. Vancouver ranked the most city in the world. And no, I did not make a typo. It was not, there was a word missing, obviously. It took me a few times of reading it and I was like, what? Um, it was posted on this Canadian humor magazine called The Syrup Trap. I don't know if you've ever seen this. It's got like a beaver who gets stuck in a syrup trap. It's very funny. Um, I'll just read a few lines from this article. Vancouver has been ranked the most city in the world, according to a ranking of 230 cities released by a Brussels think tank last week. 
The report evaluated cities based on 27 different factors, resulting in an index score out of 100. Vancouver is one of the world's most cities for numerous reasons, mainly owing to the fact that it received the highest score. No city outperformed Vancouver. Out of all the cities we ranked, none was ranked higher than Vancouver. <laughs> says Florian Nering, one of the authors of the study. Now obviously this is a joke, and I think quite a funny one, uh, but I'm sure you have all seen articles like this. Vancouver is, I mean, just the greatest place in the world. Um, it is the most beautiful city in the world, or the most expensive, or the most livable, whatever that means, or the healthiest, or the greenest. I mean, these studies seem to come out weekly about Vancouver. Oh no, we've moved down three points in the livable city category. Um, <laughs> in other words, how dare I stand here and talk about Vancouver as not being home to us. This place is incredible. But what the writer of Hebrews is trying to get at is that to have faith in the midst of exile is to set our eyes on something even greater. It's constantly to be seeking a true homeland. It's looking forward to a better country, a heavenly country. Now I can hear those criticisms kind of bubbling up inside of you. This is just escapism. This is Christian escapism. It's just an excuse not to care about the earth and what we do with it. But I'm with Lewis, again, in his assessment that to keep our eyes constantly focused on the eternal world doesn't mean that we forget about this one. It doesn't mean that we leave the present one as it is. The Christians who've done the most for this world are those who've had their eyes most fixed on the other one. Think about the apostles who set to the conversion of the Roman Empire, British evangelicals who overturned the slave trade, or Martin Luther King Jr. who worked so hard for, against oppression and segregation in the US. Even writers like Lewis and Tolkien who have so shaped our imaginations. They all left their mark because they were preoccupied with heaven. Lewis argues that this, it's because Christians have ceased to think of the other world that they've become so ineffective in this one. But this is a really hard thing to do. The only times I find myself longing for the eternal is when this world isn't all that it's cracked up to be. It's only in times of trial, intense trial, of pain, of suffering, of rejection, of loneliness, that we think, won't heaven be nice? And why is that? I'm gonna go back to Lewis again. He says there's two reasons. The first is that we just haven't been trained to think like that. Our education, our families, our work, everything tends to fix our focus on this world. And the second is that he says, the real desire for, when the real desire for heaven is present in us, we don't even recognize it. If we could look inside of our own hearts, we'd see that we really do desperately want something that this world cannot give us. Our endless consumption is just an expression of this. And like everything else, it's hollow. It never keeps its promise. Lewis says, the longings which arise in us when we first fall in love, or first think of some foreign country, or first take up some subject that excites us, are longings which no marriage, no travel, no learning can really satisfy. There was something we grasped at in that first moment of longing, which just fades away in reality. Now I can go on searching for this over and over again with better food or a new lover or another trip, or I can just become disillusioned 
and wait out my days resigned to the fact that this is unattainable. Or I can respond, as the writer of Hebrews would have us respond. I can acknowledge that this place is not home and that nothing will satisfy those feelings except that better country. To be obedient in the midst of exile is to keep seeking a homeland, to keep my eyes set on that distant country. As Lewis says, and this is my last quote from him, I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find until after death. I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside. I must make it the main object of life to press on to that other country and to help others do the same. That's beautiful. I love that. But I can't. I can't do that. Try as I might, I fail. Time and time again, I fail. I fail to be obedient to God's word. I fail to listen to the Spirit's prompting. I fail to have the sort of faith that would lead me out of comfort into exile. When I do obey, when I do experience that alienation, I, feel, I fail to keep my eyes set on that other country. And just as quickly I ran back to that place from which I came. And yet I never stop pining for it. More than anything, I desire to know the promises of God, to be known by him, to see him take delight in me, to hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. But what my failure keeps teaching me is that it's not my faith that will accomplish this. The only faith, the only faith that will carry me through exile to those very promises, to that city where I will finally see the light dance across my father's face, the delight that he's always taken in me, is not my faith. It's the faith of Christ. Jesus is the one who was obedient to the point of death. Jesus is the one who was exiled. And Jesus is the one the writer of Hebrews says, was crucified outside the city that he might finally bring me home to that heavenly country of which the prophet Isaiah says, no more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be. And my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. This is the promise that we set our eyes upon. This is the promise that we wait for, even when it drives us to exile, even in the midst of exile. Amen.